Welcome to the American Truck Driver Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Polk. This is an episode that I have been looking forward to making for about 18 months. From the time that I first met Larry Long and had a conversation with him sitting in my car uh, when I was thinking about going to work for him, uh, I just knew uh, that he was special. I knew that he was someone that I shared a kinship with um, of, of wanting to to help people and uh, and wanted to, to, to take the knowledge and experience that I had gained uh, along the way and try to, to share that with others. And I wanted to get him on this show, but I've had to wait for the time is right. And, and we finally got that uh, settled down. And, and so I've, I've sat down and I've had a long conversation with Larry and we've gone through all of his experience. Uh, and I can tell you that it's been uh, a fun ride. And we've got a lot of really great things to look forward to in the future. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Larry Long. And Larry Long, welcome to the show. Well, well, I'm glad to be here, Chris. Well, I've certainly had to drag you kicking and screaming into this, but it's been uh, something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, I'm really excited for the listeners to hear your story. I've heard it all. I'm looking forward to hearing it again. And well, I so, hope I can remember to tell it in the same order. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know how you're supposed, you know, when you, what is it, when your truck drivers just start supposed to tell lies and, you know, however they come out, they come out. Um, so let's start with, um, let's start first with your introduction to the trucking industry, and then we'll go back and put the history in that kind of gives context to your story and business. But I'll just start here. How in the world did you end up as a truck driver? Well... That is an interesting story. Um, I had just recently sold the last business that I owned, which was a chain of dry cleaners, and um, really didn't have anything uh, on the horizon. Um, First time in my life, really, I didn't have anything to do. Um, I don't have a lot of hobbies, so I sat around the house and was bored and um, my neighbor across the street had recently retired from Allstate. He was a Allstate agent in the area, was my Allstate agent. And um, he bought a small fleet of charter buses. They kind of like church groups go on, you know, not the most recent version uh, like Greyhound or, or the big the big guys would use it was a probably the the one that was most you know most recently replaced by them and so uh, he just kept thinking that I would make a good driver for him and I kept telling him how that probably wouldn't work that I really didn't have a lot of interest in driving around a bunch of church groups or a bunch of old ladies to the casino uh, during the middle of the week and hang out with them. And so he just kept on and on and on and on. And I don't know, one afternoon, probably after having one too many adult beverages, I sort of agreed to go along with that. And uh, I said, okay, uh, just to shut you up, I'm going to do this. I haven't got anything else to do. And uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be fun. Well, starting down the the path of trying to get me uh, licensed and, and through all the regulatory stuff that we as truck drivers know that I had no idea of at that time, um, we the stumbling block was that 
there was no way he was going to be able to get me insured as a driver with zero experience. And so the only way we could make that work was for me to go to a driving school and get a year's experience somehow or another. And then he would be able to get me then insured as a driver of a passenger vehicle. So I set out to do that. And we looked at couple of different uh, driving schools in the area. And of course, me being kind of the, I don't know, um, uh, OCD person that I tend to be, I wanted to go to the best driving school. Uh, so I looked and, and I found out the driving schools had ratings and, and that sort of thing. So the one that in, in my area that was the, that was the best and uh, the closest was actually in Indiana. Uh, just across the river from Louisville there. And uh, so um, I go up to a visit and uh, find out what all is involved. It was going to be three weeks. It's going to be about $6,500, as I recall. And, um, you know, I, at the end of the end of three weeks, I would leave there with a CDL. So I said, okay, let's do it. So uh, July 4th happened to be on a Monday. So we started that first day on Tuesday. And uh, I show up and we uh, uh, commence driving, you know, driving school. And it was, uh, as, as most of your listeners will know, the mornings were sort of a classroom thing. And then the afternoons were in the lot uh, backing, basically. Uh, and we did that pretty much for three weeks. So on Fridays, they would have these representatives from different trucking companies come in and give a recruiting speech. And so during the first week, they had everybody in the class uh, fill out um, um, a resume, if you will. And uh, they submitted all these to all those trucking companies that came in and recruited on, the, on Fridays. And so um, uh, about the first of the next week, I got 12 letters from all these um, company saying that they would, would hire me as long as I successfully completed this program. Um, and so I, I think they're called pre-hires. And so that encouraged me because I thought, well, you know, hey, I'm probably going to be be hired here. Uh, no, no, no question. So then it was just a, a matter of choosing which one I thought was the best fit for me. So I went on and completed the program, um, got my... Um, Got my CDL on the first attempt. Uh, I actually got 100% on the pre-trip, uh, which was the highest in my class. Speaking of the class, uh, we started out with about 30 people. On day one, they took us down to do drug tests at lunchtime, and 15 of the people didn't come back from lunch. So uh, that was I thought was interesting. And then during the course of the three weeks, we got down to about seven people that actually actually finished the program. Uh, there was, a, lay, there was a, a gal there that was being recycled for the third time because she had not yet been able to pass the actual road test. So this was her three weeks now times three. This was her ninth week trying to get the road test passed. And they had told her, I said, look, if you don't get it this time, you know, you're, we're you're going to have to go somewhere else. So, uh, by the way, she did get, she did actually complete it in the ninth week. So, uh, so anyway, the, um, the, the pre-hires, I was looking through them, trying to make my decision. And, uh, I had chosen, um, an outfit out of, 
I think it's Wisconsin or Minnesota, called w, uh, W.O. Wolding or H.O. Wolding, H.O. Wolding. Because they, the recruiter always came in and start shirts. She made an impression on me like they were the best of the best, you know. We only take the best drivers. We're only da-da-da-da-da. So I thought, well, I'm attracted to that. I kind of am, a, you know, I'd uh, like to think that I'm the best at what I do. So I, got, I agreed to go to their um, orientation, which they, only, they had two locations. One was up in their home office, and the other one was down in Alabama, uh, around Decatur, Alabama. And that's where they sent people that were, you know, you went to the one closest to where you lived. And so that was closer to me. So I roll up in there on a Monday morning. Uh, it's like a trailer in the middle of a, of a field and a gravel lot there. And that was, to say I was uh, unimpressed would have been quite the overstatement. And so um, I um, went ahead and went into class for the first day and, did everything. Day two, I came in. I was less impressed, and I just said, "Look, you know, I'm I'm out. I, it's it's just not for me. You know, this is not this is not what I signed on to do." And and so I called the recruiter and said, "Hey, you know, it's just not going to work. I'm I'm not. This is not for me. So I'm I'm leaving." So I I packed up my stuff, came home, and sat around for a couple of weeks thinking, well, what am I going to do now? And I started looking through the pre-hire letters again and all the recruiting information I had. And um, came across Transport America. And I was attracted to them because they had an actual terminal, if you will, uh, right just across the river in Louisville, very close to my school, as a matter of fact. And uh, I could then um, commute there, park my truck there. I just felt like it, it, was a, it would probably be a good place, for, a very convenient place for me to work from. And so I gave them a call, and I told them what I was looking for. And they, uh, yeah, they said, yeah, we would work with you. We'll let you work out of that terminal. We'll let you park your POV there and all that sort of stuff. So I said, okay, let me, let's go. So I went to their orientation, which, uh, again, was in Indiana, just uh, up on exit 29, just north of the school. All this was really close together after the fact. I didn't realize at the time. And their um, orientation was one week, and uh, I... um, Showed up there, um, totally different experience. Uh, very, very organized, very, very professional uh, orientation staff. Um, they had um, um, uh, lots of, uh, you know, lot, lot, just, just uh, very impressive. And um, so I went ahead and completed that that week program. And my uh, my next uh, my next hurdle that I realized was getting ready to happen was that I was getting ready to have to spend 30 days in a truck with somebody that I didn't know. And I'm thinking, man, this is really going to be a bummer, you know? And so I was really dreading that. And so the guy there at the orientation that makes the assignments, uh, and oh, by the way, I'm the oldest guy there at the time I'm 54 and everybody else there is like in their twenties or thirties, you know, So um, I think the guy that did the orientation assignments uh, or the assignments to the drivers, trainers, I think he recognized that I was a little bit apprehensive about that. And he called me and he said, hey, um, I want to put you with somebody that I think you're really going to like. And I'm like, well, okay, good. That's important. Appreciate that. He said, I'm going to put you with John. And by the way, John is our trainer 
trainer. And I thought, hmm, that was probably cool. So um, I met John. John weighed probably 400 pounds. And so um, I sort of had a connection to that because uh, a year earlier, I weighed um, about 400 pounds. And I had gone through a uh, weight loss uh, and, and I, at that time, I was about 230 pounds. And so uh, we had a lot to talk about. We, we connected very quickly and, and turned out it was a very, very good experience for me. Um, I ended up giving him nine trash bags of clothes that I couldn't wear any more than he could. And he really appreciated that. And um, we went on and, and had a great uh, three weeks of, of, uh, of training he, um, we happened to be going by the orientation center just on doing a load on the third week. It actually was the 20th day that I was in training, actually. And he said, you know, you're ready. So I'm going to pull in here and see if they'll, they'll test you out and let you go ahead and do your thing. So we went in there and they, I did the, uh, the, um, uh, what do you call the thing, the, the, the machine Run inside? Test. No, oh, the, simulator. the simulator, the simulator, did the simulator, it all went well, went on a road test with the, uh, the guy there who approves you, and he goes, yeah, you're, you're ready, so problem is, your problem is you, got, you have to have 21 days, you know, so I went outside, and, they, and John and he had a talk, and he came back out and said, okay, you're good to go, so they put me on a van to Atlanta, and uh, in, in a van to Atlanta, and I went down to get my truck, and so on day 21, I was actually, actually driving, um, Took my first load, and so uh, so that's how I got you in. there for a second. I want to I want to go back a couple of things I find interesting. That after hearing your story, um, comparatively speaking, with with how most people end up in the industry, you went to that first carrier. You looked around. You you saw or you felt something you didn't like, and I think it's important to understand that. With your age and, and your past success, it created a, an opportunity for you to say, you know what, you know what, guys, I'm out. I, this, this, is not, this is not good for me. This is not my, my kind of fit. And most drivers are so desperate. Most people that come into this industry are so desperate. They're so broke. I certainly was, you know, when, when I'm 21 years old. You know, I didn't have a pot nor a window. You know, I, I was so, so when I picked a company, and I picked the wrong company for all the wrong reasons, I was stuck. There, there was nowhere else to go. So I, I think it's significant there um, that you were able to communicate that with them, and you did not feel um, pressured. You did not feel that you were uh, an indentured servant. Um, and that is one of the biggest lessons for me as I've gotten to know you that the more good decisions you make going down the road, the easier it is for you to, you know, if you do take a risk and you do take a couple steps in one direction and you say, oh, no, you know what, I'm out. You're not to the point of desperation that you have to be stuck in that. Um, well, but I think that probably is just part of age and maturity and 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 yeah and again recognize the only pressure i felt was that i'd spent a lot of money and a lot of investment and time at that point in time 
getting to the point that I was with my CDL and that sort of thing. And the only pressure I felt was that I don't want to waste this, you know, this investment in time and money. And But other than that, I really didn't feel, I mean, I certainly wasn't under financial pressure. And I think that's yeah. probably a, a big difference, you know. But because, uh, I mean, a lot of people that we run into, obviously, I mean, they're just, you know, they're one paycheck away from disaster. So I resemble that remark. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but that was obviously was an advantage, you know, for sure. But then again, I also recognize that because everything I've ever done, I, I've always felt like it's important to be around people that you like being around. And the thing that, that turned me off about the first company was that I didn't like being around who I was around. And mm-hmm. I, and it just didn't feel right to me. And, and, and I just said, you know, usually the things start out bad don't end up good and i just felt like that was a you know just a an indicator to me that this is not what i wanted to continue to uh you know to try to make happen and so uh and then transport america you know totally different uh, atmosphere you know i actually had respect for them you know to this day they i think their tagline was something about um changing the way trucking is done or there's something in their tagline even today that talks about how they do things differently and i found that to be the fact when the whole time i was there they they were definitely trying to change the way that uh that trucking was perceived and and the way drivers were perceived by it for sure um but that was important to me you know um and so yeah uh, understand what you're asking. So let's let's go back to your first load. I, I, re, I still remember my first load. I, I loaded somewhere on the south side of Atlanta and had an audience as it took me about 40 minutes to back into the dock and get not straight. I was kind of straight, kind of in the general vicinity of the dock, but it was kind of like it finally got to the point where the guy said, enough. Okay, just stop. We, we'll, we'll load you here. You know, so <laughs> what was your first load experience like? Well, a lot like that. Uh, you know, I was nervous. Uh, I remember it was over there near Six Flags in Atlanta somewhere. I don't remember exactly, but I want to say it was a low going to a Home Depot DC. And it, I do remember what it was. It was tile. It was like porcelain or ceramic tile. And it was some facility near Six Flags. Really, I remember that's because I missed the turnoff about three times and ended up going around Six Flags, you know, all, you know, all morning, you know, trying to get to the where I'm going. And uh, I, I get there, though, and it's a pretty heavy load because that tile was very, very heavy. I don't really remember where I delivered it, honestly. I do know it was, I think it was a Home Depot or a Lowe's DC is where it went to. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'd been doing it for three weeks with another guy, you know, and obviously, you know, even though you, you know, you think you know what you're doing until you do it the first time on your own. You, you know, I'm just all thumbs, you know, I'm just trying to figure out where, you know, what to do. And, and like you, I like to never got the daggone trailer up to the dock. And, and then too, then I had to pull out cause it's so heavy. I had to go scale it. And my God, that was like a nightmare trying to figure out, you know, how to get the axle set and so forth. It took me all day really to get loaded and get, you know, um, and, and get ready to roll. And, uh, and of course, being in Atlanta, that didn't help things either, you know, that, that mess down there. Um, but I got through it, you know. Um, the thing that really, really, um, I guess, uh, the difference between what I had done in the past 
and I don't know how much you want to get into that, but most of the things I've done in the past, there was a um, there was a time period between the time you did the work and the time you got paid. And the thing that really, really, really um, impressed me the most about being in being a truck driver was that, you know, I bumped the dock when I delivered. I went in and did my macros on the Qualcomm, and I get a response back, and there's my pay. And I'm like, damn. You know, I'm paid, mm-hmm. I'm done, I'm, you know, I don't have to deal with employees and customers and brides mothers and, you know, I'm just, I, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next project that I did. I didn't create a wake with this boat going down the water, you know, yeah. I'm back to the dock and there's no wake, you know. And so that really, really uh, appealed to me. I'm like, man, I can just go do this and get paid and not have to worry about other things. I'll never forget the the sanctuary that the truck became to me. You know, again, having employees and having customers and having, you know, all the things that I've dealt with in business for all these years. Get in a truck by yourself, roll the windows up, turn on the radio, you know, and listen to music or listen to talk, whatever it is you want to listen to. But it's just, it's very zen, you know, it's you and it's the moment and it's all there is. And then, and I just felt that was such a different uh, environment for me because when I started telling my friends and my business associates and clients and relatives and what I was doing, they're like, what in the hell is wrong with you? You know, you a truck driver? I'm like, you wouldn't believe how therapeutic this is for me right now, you know, because I can go do this. I get paid instantly and it's just me and the truck, you know, and I don't have to worry about anybody else but me, you know. My my best friend of 25 years followed me into the industry. He he started driving a couple years after I did, and then he drove a few years and uh, went back to college and started working on computers. And I just remember this conversation that he and I had one day. He had a really bad week at work. And uh, he's like, God, I'm so stressed out. I'm done. Uh, he said, I just want to get in a truck and go to West Texas. I'm going to set the cruise on 90 and I just want to drive. I just, I need therapy, you know? And, uh, uh, and it is there, there's something about when, when you can enjoy the road, you know, I've been obviously in, in times of my life with so much external stress that it, it didn't really help, but there is something therapeutic about just just being on the road. Um, so from from the time you hauled that first load, when was it that the idea of buying a truck? How how long did that take before you started thinking? I guess your entrepreneurial spirit kicks in and you start looking around. And how how long is it before you start thinking about buying a truck? Not very long, because you know, again, telling my my friends and acquaintances and people that have influence on me, what I was doing, that was their next question. Well, you're going to buy a bunch of trucks, right? I mean, you're not going to be a truck driver. I mean, you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to buy a trucking company, right? And at that point in time, I didn't even thought about it, you know, because again, I was so taken by the, the, the newness of this and, 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 and all the things that were so different than anything I'd ever done. And two, I'm still, you know, I mean, when you, when you'd buy a business and, and spend years trying to get it 
off the ground. And, and in my case where I bought a lot of businesses that were in distress and, and try to get them ready to be flipped and so forth. There's, you, you expend a lot of energy and a lot of, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And so there's a recovery period after that. And I'm in this recovery period, you know, so I'm really not looking right now for another challenge. I'm just looking for something to stay busy. So, um, you know, I'm driving, again, you know, driving a truck, you've got lots of time to think, you know. So, you know, I'm, I've come home a couple of times. I'm back out now and I'm driving down the road and I'm thinking, you know, what they're saying is probably true. You know, there's probably a business opportunity here. So I start looking at it from that standpoint. So it wasn't very long, Chris, probably within two or three months of the time that I started before I started realizing that, wait a minute, number one, I am really not um, in need of a, of a dispatcher. You know, I mean, I, I, I realized very early on that the dispatcher-driver relationship was so critical to your success. And in the short time that I was a company driver at Transport America, I had some very good ones and some very shitty ones. And so I realized how important that was. And I thought, you know, the quicker that I can get away from having to depend on somebody else for my livelihood, the better off I'm going to be. Nobody and can manage your time better than you can. Absolutely. And here's the, here, here was, the, here was the, the icing on the cake for that. I'll never forget it. I'm, in Can- I'm outside of Kansas City, one of those little towns out there, out at Lee Summit or something, you know, out there in the, in the area of Kansas City. It's Friday afternoon. I'm delivering to a beverage place. And I get there, and there's a, it's probably 3 o'clock in the afternoon on, on, on a Friday afternoon. I get there, and there's a big piece of paper on the, on the door saying we're, there's no water or power or something. There's something utility that's not work that's off. We're gone for the day. See you Monday morning. I'm like bullshit. You know, this is a, I had already planned on doing something this weekend. You know, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not going to happen. So I call my dispatch. Well, you can't call your dispatch when you're company driver. You have to Qualcomm your dispatcher, okay? Because you know you're not you don't have you're not on the same level with them. You can't talk to them on the phone. You know. So, uh, so I Qualcomm my dispatcher and told him what was going on. And his response was, and it, it almost, almost verbatim, well, just sit there in the parking lot till Monday morning. Well, I went off and I, <laughs> I did what you're not supposed to do. And I called, well, I, I called him. I said, I'm going to call you. And so I called him and he answered the phone and I said, you need to understand something. I said, this truck is six by six at best. I said, what are you planning on doing this weekend? And he told me all what he had on plan. I said, why do you think that it's okay for me to sit in this six-by-six cell all weekend while you're out doing X, Y, whatever it is that he said he was going to do? I said, why would you think that that's okay? He goes, well, I don't know what else to tell you. I'm like, well, I'm going to tell you what else you can tell me. I said, I know for a fact that we have a terminal 20 miles from where I'm at right now. I know for a fact that that terminal is full of local drivers. So here's what's going to happen. I'm driving this truck and this trailer over to our terminal in North Kansas City, and I'm going to take it in, and I'm going to drop that trailer, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to uh, bobtail out or take an empty trailer, whatever. I'm getting the hell out of there, okay? 
And you can get me on a load Monday morning from from home. I'm going home. You can get me on a load Monday morning out of the terminal there in, in Louisville. Um, or, you know, I can I can leave the trailer and truck. I'll leave the trailer in Kansas City. I'll leave your truck in Louisville, and you know you can find somebody else. Well, now there's no reason for you to act that way. That there's no, and I'm like, I, that, yeah, there is a reason. I'm not sitting in this truck all weekend, and I'm pissed that you would think that I would. And so, um, a few minutes later, the the, the senior fleet um, manager called me. Said, now it's female. Now, Larry, calm down. You know, there's no reason to get this way. I'm like, well, I, first of all, I am calm. Second of all, I just, I don't feel like, look, I'm a driver. I, I, I shouldn't be solving these problems, but I just solved this problem. And I told her exactly what I said. She goes, well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that idea. I'm like, thank you. So here's what we're going to do. So I um, took the trailer over there, just like I said. And better than that, she found me a relay load that actually took me through the house that was sitting there that they needed to have moved over the weekend. So it all worked out, and, and that, that, that sealed the deal. After that weekend, I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. So I started calling a guy named Mark who was in charge of the owner-operator program there at Transport America. Uh, and I said, look, I am going to have to be an owner-operator if I stay in this business. And at the time, I'd only been driving for about six months. And he said, well, you know, you, just, you, have, to, you have to have at least a year's experience to be an owner-operator. And I'm like, well, I won't be here in a year. You can forget about that. <laughs> so he said, well, let me, let, me, let me work on it a little bit. So I would call him every week, and he'd tell me the same thing. Well, let me work on it a little bit, you know. So finally, <clears throat> about the eight-month period, he knew I wasn't going because, again, I'd call him every week, probably more than once a week. He knew I wasn't going to give it up. And so by that time, they're starting to take me seriously. They're checking my driving record. They're checking my service failure record and everything. And, of course, at that point in time, it was, you know, it was perfect. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any service failures. And all the metrics that they measured you by, I was, you know, in the – top one or two percent you know they don't want you to idle a truck i didn't idle the truck and whatever they wanted you to do that's what i did you know always got a safety bonus always got an idle bonus always got a performance bonus so i had a pretty good record so i said well because of your age and your background in business and 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 what you've done for us and and the recommendation of a couple of your dispatches we're going to go ahead and allow you to to be an owner upper i said perfect so i um I went ahead and uh, found a truck, bought a truck, bought the wrong truck, but still bought a truck. Oh, I can't wait to tell that story. <laughs> and so I leased the truck back onto Transport America because I liked being there. I liked the company. I hated my dispatchers, some of them, not all of them. But um, So I leased the truck back onto Transport America. So now I'm an owner-operator, and um, I'm, owner-operators have a different uh, board uh, than company drivers. So now I'm on the owner-operator board. And sure enough, the dispatcher on that board was much, much different. Uh, Transport America at that time was about 1,200 trucks with about 200 owner-operators at that point in time. So, um, you know, it was, um, it, it was certainly a different environment uh, being an owner-operator there. There was a whole lot more uh, respect and professionalism and, and, and the relationship. And so, uh, 
so it, it was much better for me. And then um, eventually, uh, let's see, I bought the truck in June. And then... And this is 2008, right? 2008, correct. And so I... Um, they had this program. Oh, I'll tell you this too. While I was a company driver, uh, they they started a driver council, and they wanted uh, mainly mainly veteran drivers, but they did want one new driver on this driver council. About eighteen drivers, okay, owner operators, drivers have been there forever. So I ended up being asked uh, to be on the driver council, and I'd only been there six months, you know. They said, we really want the, you know, we want the opinion of someone who's new. And, uh, and so I said, hey, no problem. I'd be happy to be on the driver council. So I'm down at the, uh, I'm, I'm at the uh, home office sometime in November for a driver council meeting. And um, I go to check in. This is probably my second meeting, I guess. Uh, I go to check in and uh, my uh, dispatcher uh, knew I was going to be there. She comes out and she goes, you know, don't leave this t- today without coming to see me. And I say, no problem. I thought, man, what, what that's about? What have I done now, you know? And so we have our driver council meeting, do all of our stuff and everything. And it's late in the day and I, and I almost forgot, you know, and I'm going out the door and I thought, damn, I got to go see her. So I turn around and go back in and, and she goes, um, I've got something that, that, that I think you're going to very much be interested in that I need you to sit down and listen to. And I said, okay. So she took me in this office. And uh, it's, uh, it, this office is uh, the, um, the, uh, dry, the, the fleet manager, if you want to call it that, for all the FedEx dedicated at Transport America. So they, are, they, go, they go on to give me this um, um, spiel about, you know, here's what we've got. Um, we, the driver who does, who, who has been doing this for, I don't know how many years, 20 years, I want to say, uh, had a heart attack and he can't drive anymore. And so we have an opening and we rarely have an opening in this, in this division. And, um, but we do have one and based on your performance and your, you know, your record and everything, we'd like to offer you this position. And I said, well, I don't want it. And I thought my I thought my my fleet manager was going to you know pee her pants. She looked at me and she just kind of squinted her eyes. She goes, "Are you sure?" I'm, I'm like, "I don't I don't want to do the same thing over and over again." I said, "What what I like about this is every every day having a different adventure, you know." And I wasn't listening to what I was saying. I was just saying what I thought I, you know, what I thought I felt. And so they said, okay, well, no problem. So we go back out in the hallway, and she goes, listen, you really, really need to think about this. This is not something that comes up every day. And do you realize, I mean, the consistency and, and everything? And so she's giving me all the reasons to do it. And I'm thinking, well, maybe there's something here I'm not seeing, you know. So just out of respect for her, I went back in, and I said, okay, look, if you guys want me to do this, let's do it this way. I said, you know, I felt like I was a you know, big negotiator. I was a big businessman, you know. So I said, here's the deal. Uh, I, I, I will try it for 90 days if you give it to me in writing that if I, at any point in time I want to go back to what I'm doing, I go back exactly where I left with no interruption at all in seniority or anything, anything. I go back like it never happened. And they said, no problem, we'll write it up. So they typed it up. They brought it in to me. 
And so uh, I signed it. And so the next day, I'm starting to do FedEx out of the Indianapolis airport, uh, going to Elizabeth, New Jersey. And, and of course, you can't do that in one uh, one shift. So I would drop it in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and a local guy would take it on, drop it, bring me back the loaded trailer 10 hours later. And so I did that. Ended up doing it for four and a half years. Uh, I took the load as a two double round trip, two round trips from Indianapolis to Carlisle and back Monday Monday night out, um, Tuesday night back, Wednesday night back out, Thursday night back back to Indianapolis, and that was that was it. And so I did that for a few weeks, and uh, I I kind of you know sort of thinking, well, you know this this is not bad, you know I I, I see the advantage now of uh, of knowing where you're going, uh, being familiar with who you're going to see. Uh, knowing the roads, knowing where you're going to park, knowing where you're going to eat. I, so, I mean, I started coming around to this 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 this, uh, this um, dedicated thing, you know. And so I said, look, <clears throat> if I'm going to do this, I, four nights a week is really not enough, you know. I mean, is there anything we can do to add to this? And so she looks and she goes, well, matter of fact, we've got Indianapolis to north jackson ohio a round trip on friday night and i'm can you do it and i'm like well i don't know how many miles is it and she said well it's it's um 330 miles one way 660 miles and i said yeah i can i'm sure i can do it let me try it one one night and let's just see so you leave out about five o'clock on friday night you know and you go up and make your delivery drop and hook in north jackson turn right around and come back did it no problem um so i said well this works great you know let's add this to my my route so we did and i did that for a few weeks and i said you know what is there uh, is there something else and they go you're kidding and i'm like no i'm, I'm i've still got hours I, there's no reason for me sitting and they said, well, we actually have one of these on Saturday night. And I said, well, give it to me. So, you sure you can do it? Positive. Give it to me. So, they gave me both those Friday and Saturday night routes. So, for, for nearly four years, I did those uh, two round trips to Carlisle, two round trips to North Jackson, Ohio. And this is in 08, 09 now. 09, I guess. When we, but I started this in November, so this would have been well into 09 by the time I got all these other trips. But that was in the big recession. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of um, a lot of problems with uh, rates and everything. But uh, that um, put my truck at, at a quarter million quarter million dollars to the truck. Um, wow! And I, I thought I was on top of the world, buddy. Um, so did they. Uh, I was top producer, you know, and um, uh, and I also was on ELD. And so my fleet manager, I, I got a new fleet manager on the freight, on the on the FedEx stuff, and he was a former driver. He used to drive Indianapolis to Minneapolis, and he decided he wanted to get out of the truck, and so they gave him a job inside, and he worked up to FedEx fleet manager because that's what he had done. And he he says, "Long, there's no way you're doing this legal." And I said, "Well, check it out, you know." He goes, there's no way. I'm going to find out what you're doing. I'm going to bust you. You're going to, I'm busting you. I'm like, well, go right ahead. Knock yourself out, you know. So he was up my ass, okay. And so he's always trying to figure out how I'm doing it, you know. And uh, and so uh, 
they I mean I they they never they never found anything obviously so um, but uh, the only reason I left there Chris and you know this is that uh, during the Obama administration when they came out with the twenty the thirty four hour reset had to be split over two different nights two consecutive nights at that time I had four trucks at at Transport America I know we're skipping some stuff here. But I'll just hit on this. I had four trucks doing FedEx about like what I was doing. Not probably not quite um, as much, but but close. And running six nights a week. And so having that um, split thirty-four hour reset cost me nine hundred dollars per truck per week by losing that mm. six nine. And so I had to do something. And so that's when I started moving the trucks out of Transport America. Um, but I know we're jumping way ahead. But that's what, yeah. we, that's what I turned it into, from going from a company driver to owning a truck and then becoming a dedicated driver and, and putting in a quarter million dollars a year to that truck. And that was the start of Blue Ribbon Logistics right there. So let's, let's go back to the truck for a minute. Uh, you said before you bought the wrong truck. Uh-huh. Now, as kind of a as kind of a teaser, let's talk about how many miles that truck on it has today. Well, that truck is still in our fleet. Matter of fact, I still drive that same truck, and it currently has 1.65 million miles on it. It's never had the head off. It's never had an end frame. Uh, I've put a turbo on it, along with you know, along with the starter and alternator and stuff like that, but air conditioning compressor a couple of times, but. Engine work never, um, never had the head off. Um, now it's a 07 Columbia, but it's 04 uh, emissions. In other words, mm-hmm. it is EGR only, not DPF. Um, and so, um, you know, 07 and a half is where they switched over. 08 is when the uh, DPF uh, actually started, but they started halfway through 07. So I was lucky in that because I had no idea. I could not, I mean, I knew what EGR was from Bandai's in the car business, but I didn't have any idea what DPF was, you know, and I didn't have any idea what, you know, what emissions in trucks were getting ready to do to everybody's life, you know. Yeah, neither did we. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I go, I mean, the Transport America worked with a couple of different co- companies, okay? And most people leased these trucks, but I, I didn't. I, pay, I, I wrote a check and paid for mine, but... But I went with a company called Transport 21, which is up there just in Minneapolis. And it was just a, 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 a relationship that Transport America had with this other, this other outfit. There was two or three different places, and I, I just liked them the best. And so I went over there and picked the truck off. There were three or four on the lot. They were all identical. They were all, the only difference was one of them was a 13-speed, and mine was nine was a 10. And I, only, I took that because I'd never driven a 13-speed. Now, again, looking back, I would much rather have that now. But then I knew nothing about trucks, you know. And the I, I only truck I'd ever driven was a 10-speed. So I thought, well, I'm not going to relearn how to drive a truck now. Let me just get a 10-speed. So I knew nothing, you know. So this truck turns out to have a Mercedes-Benz engine in it. Now, in my former life, I was the parts and service and body shop director at a Mercedes-Benz dealership. Had a ton of respect for Mercedes-Benz as a company. I had no idea what they did in the trucking business, okay? And I had no idea that Mercedes-Benz was a laughing stock of, of truck stops, you know. 
So I thought I had something, you know, till I, till I started hanging out with truck drivers. And I found out that I had the pussy of trucks, you know. And so uh, to this day, we call it metrosexual, you know, because it, it just doesn't have, <laughs> it just doesn't have big testicles, okay? You yeah. know? So, um, uh, but anyway, make, make, to finish up your story there, uh, it's, it's an 07 Columbia Mercedes-Benz engine. And uh, that didn't, I mean, for what I was doing, it really was fine because I was just running the Midwest and I wasn't running up and down hills. And with FedEx, the heaviest load I ever pulled was about 18,000 pounds. I mean, it was fine. I was getting nine miles a gallon, you know, eventually. And I worked it up to about nine miles, 9.2 actually. And so it was a perfect truck for what I was doing. Now, fast forward, I moved it to Landstar started pulling 30 and 35,000 pound loads and actually took one of them to Salt Lake City where I found out that you can't take a Mercedes-Benz engine over that mountain because it doesn't have a jake. It has mm. this thing called an engine brake that is uh, you could drag your foot and do be- do better than what the engine brake does. And so coming down the side of that mountain with my at that time white painted steel wheels that are turning brown from the heat I've learned very quickly that that was not, uh, you know, the truck for that kind of operation. So keeping it within its, its, you know, its capabilities, it's been a, it's been a great truck. Uh, I also now know from all of my experience now that you know, there, I, when I go into a shop and tell them I've got a Mercedes, especially a Detroit shop, that I've got a Mercedes with a 1.6 million miles on it and it never had an in frame, they just look at me and shake their head. They go, we've never seen one go 800,000 miles. So you right now are ready for two of them and uh, haven't had any. So I know that Chris is probably going to get into the reasons for that, but um, but that's the truck I bought. Now, you know, had, had I known then what I know now, obviously I'd have bought a, Detroit, a 60 series Detroit and a 13 speed, you know. Probably mm-hmm. would have still bought a Columbia. I mean, I don't, I have no regrets about that. Uh, you know, it's aerodynamic and, you know, it's, I mean, it's not a, it, you know, it, 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 it's not a luxury vehicle by any means. But, you know, my philosophy there is it's a tool. You know, it's just a means yeah. to an end. And uh, the good thing about it, in retrospect, is that, you know, um, I can take it to any tier Petro in the country and they're a Freightliner service point. And uh, still driving an older truck, they actually enjoy working on it as opposed to, you know, dreading working on it because they actually can fix it, you know, when it yeah. needs to be. So. So, <clears throat> so you spend a little time as a company driver. You, you, you get the itch to, to become an owner-operator. You buy this truck, and now you have it. So in that first, say, 90 days, um, how, I guess from a, I guess a business perspective, how are you looking at, at this asset and and what it can make and what it costs you to operate and and how long how far along in that before you find Kevin Rutherford? Well, driving at night, uh, all this FedEx stuff is only at night. Okay, so driving at night, um, I found uh, Sirius XM Radio, uh, which was my friend because uh, you know 
drive at night, there's not much. You know, you, if you listen to regular radio, you've got to change the station every time you change cities and whatnot. So um, uh, getting used to being a nighttime driver, I, I became very familiar with, with Sirius Radio. And so I kept looking for, you know, educational stuff, you know, and I came across Road Dog Channel. And, and of course, during the day, it's mainly entertainment. There's a little bit of, of, of good programming, but, but not so much back then. It was mainly just, and, it, and the overnight was just a CB radio. And so the, the only program that, that caught my fancy was at midnight. There was a call-in radio show. It was called uh, Trucking Business and Beyond. And at that time, it was sponsored by ATBS. And so um, there's this guy named Kevin Rutherford that did this radio show. And he was, you know, compared to most radio shows, it was fairly unpolished. You know, it wasn't a slick presentation. But the information was just raw, and it was, it was, good. It was exactly what I needed because I didn't know anything about trucking zero i knew i mean you know, you know most people who get in trucking you know their father was a trucker their grandfather was a trucker their brother was a trucker you know they they grew up in the industry i knew nothing about it zero and so uh i felt like this was a chance for me to really learn uh about this you know and driving down the road you know what a bonus you know so, um, and the format of the show was just, it's a call-in show. People would call in and go, hey, I've got a problem with this, you know. And, and so I learned so much by just listening to other people's questions and problems to where I thought, man, I, I mean, I, that's going to be very useful. I mean, it was, it was very useful. And this so, industry has its, has its own vocabulary. That's true. Absolutely true. And so he talks about this this thing he has, this, this CMC, I'm like, what the hell is a CMC? And so, um, I, um, I, it t- turns out it's this week long, uh, conference that, um, that he puts on and they talk about all these best practices and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, man, I like this show. I like him. I'd probably like to attend that. So I call up the phone number and I say, you know, I'd like to get in on that. Well, I'm sorry, we're sold out this year. I'm like, well, damn. I said, well, let me give you the money so I can be the first on the list for next year. And she said, okay, we'll do that. So I gave her the credit card. And so for the next now, what year, year. What year is this, you think? Oh, nine. nine? Oh, nine. Okay. And at that, at that point in time, the CMC was in, um, I want to say October, Chris. It was in October. Well, it turned out they decided to move the next year's up. So the next year's, I believe, was in April instead of October. And so uh, it wasn't a year. I didn't have to wait a year. You know, um, April rolls around. We're going to have it this year uh, in, in April, and, and, and it's in Kansas City. Well, we got a terminal in Kansas City, so that worked out pretty good for me. So... I go out there, and um, um, as a former photographer, I typically, or back then, and more than I do now, but I would always have a camera, you know, with me. And since I was a professional photographer, I had a pretty impressive camera with me, you know, the, to most people. And so uh, I show up at this conference. I've got my camera over my shoulder, you know, and. And so I, we go in and, you know, we sit down and, I mean, it just blows me away, you know. And, uh, and the, all the information and all of the, 
the other the other owner operators there. Uh, it was just it was just a, it just blew my mind, you know, uh, all the information and the people that were there. And I'm like, man. So I look around. There's probably 300 people there, you know, 250, 300 people there, and and all their trucks are outside, you know, and um, and I'm like, I'm in a classroom with all these like-minded people that are in there just trying to absorb everything they can. It was just a completely different atmosphere that I'd ever seen anywhere else in the trucking industry. It certainly was different than a truck stop. And it was even different from most other safety meetings and stuff like that I'm at because everybody there was just had a great attitude. And, you know, you could just tell, and you could tell by their trucks, you could tell by the way they dressed. You know, they were successful people, you know. And so um, his, uh, Kevin's, at the time it was his fiancée or girlfriend, they weren't married, but her name was Lisa. She is a, a very big uh, photo fan, and she recognized my camera, and she goes, um, say there, um, you've got that camera over your shoulder. Would you mind just taking some pictures this week of what goes on and just, you know, let me have them at the end of the week so we've got something to put on, you know, on, on Facebook or the Internet or whatever? And I'm like, oh, absolutely not. I wouldn't have any problem doing it at all. So I started taking some pictures of stuff. Well, then my wedding, you know, self kicked in and so then I start treating the thing like a wedding reception and so I re- I mean I did a pretty good job I guess I mean I ended up with hundreds of photos you know and have all these people in and everything so I gave her my disc at the end of the week and and she um she said uh, um oh she said thanks and, and she she stuck them in her computer and so as I was packing up to leave she goes hang on a second would you would you care to come back at you know at the next CMC as as our guest and just take pictures and I'm like I would be honored to do it you know because I was going to come back anyway you know and so that started my relationship with Kevin and Lisa and uh, so I came back the next year and uh, and didn't cost me anything they covered all my expenses and I thought man I was in heaven you know I'd go back there and hang out with all these people again this year there was more people there bigger bigger room and and so, um, and after the second year, they invited me to be on the staff. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting paid to be there. And so it just started my relationship with Kevin. And, you know, we've gotten to be actually pretty good, pretty good friends since then. And, and, um, uh, I've known him now since, since 09. Uh, and, uh, with the exception of one year where I was in an automobile accident, I've been to every CMC, you know, up until this year. So, um, um, but that's, uh, that's been a huge, a huge resource for me. Uh, not only just Kevin, but the networking and all of the educational opportunities that, that were available because of the people I met at the CMC. You know, I met a lot of people who are very, very good at what they do, you know, like Mike Beckett and Bruce Mallinson and those kinds of guys, you know, um, and having those relationships has paid off, you know, uh, you know, so, so much uh, with me trying to learn, you know, what's going on in this business and trying to grow my fleet and so forth. And, you know, helping me run a more efficient, uh, efficient operation. So probably a, a, a big reason why that Mercedes has 1.7 million on it. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously a lot of the products that Kevin promotes, you know, are, 
um, uh, I utilized. And one of them, one of the, the one of the very first things I did to that truck was I put the bypass filter system on it. We call it the OPS, oil purification system. And um, and for those that don't know, it basically takes um, uh, all the oil over the course of a day and reroutes it through a 5-micron filter um, compared to a 50-micron filter that's your normal engine oil filter from the factory. And it um, also has a, a heated element in it. So it heats it up to get the, the uh, liquid contaminants out. It puts the solids into a spin-on filter, which we change every 25,000 miles, and do an oil sample. And um, so I've had oil samples on that truck since it had about 300,000 miles on it. And I've never had a, a oil sample come back to tell me to change the oil. Now, I've changed the oil a couple of times only because I want to try a different brand or, or, or type of oil. So that truck in 1.65 million miles has only had, I want to say, four oil changes. Uh, maybe five. I, I think that we had, a, I had an oil leak. And I think I, 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 because it leaked so bad, I was putting regular mineral oil in it instead of the synthetic I normally run. And so I had to get it out of there. So it's probably got five oil changes. Uh, but no, at no time did it ever um, have to be changed because of the condition of the oil. Uh, each time I change it just to try a different oil. So uh, I know that freaks people out, but uh, that truck has had as much as 500,000 miles on an oil change. And, uh, and I, obviously it hasn't hurt, hurt the motor uh, because it wakes up every morning with completely clean oil. You know, it's, it, it, it goes through all 11 gallons in the course of a day. And so the next day that oil is just as clean as it came out of the, uh, out of the bottle. So I'm sure that's the reason that it's got 1.6 million miles. I also have something called a FAS on it, which is a fuel air separator system which basically just, um, uh, it's, it's additional filtration in the, um, and pump in the uh, fuel system that does the same thing to fuel that this, that the OPS does the oil and it takes the, the air, uh, out of the system so that you don't ever have your injectors dry, you know, uh, metal against metal. And so it keeps the fuel system, um, um, without air, you know. Uh, this truck has the original injectors in it too, by the way. Never had any, never replaced an injector in this truck, so. That's crazy. So, <clears throat> so we, we kind of walked through how you got into the business, how you became an owner-operator, how you began to refine your operation uh, with the help of, of Kevin Rutherford, and, and you hit on that, that the regulation change is what led you to had you looked at landstar before this and 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 so the opportunity when it when it came up because uh, I, I know kevin's talked about landstar for years you seem to have it like you liked it at transport america you had a good deal you're making money and not a real monetary financial reason to switch carriers um so was the decision to move to landstar solely predicated on the regulation change or uh, was it also something you'd been looking at seeing as a possibility? Well, obviously I ran across Landstar drivers at the CMCs. You know, uh, about 20% of the, of the drivers at CMCs are Landstar drivers. About another 20% are Mercer drivers. And then the other, you know, 60% are, are, are from everywhere. 
So obviously I ran across Landstar drivers at the CMC. I always was impressed with them. Also, Landstar as a company always came to the CMC for a couple of days and set up a booth and that sort of thing. So I was familiar with Landstar. I didn't leave Transport America to go to Landstar. As a matter of fact, let me tell you how that happened. Um, I had four trucks at Transport America. And I knew I had to leave. I mean, I, I didn't have to leave Transport America, but... I was going to have to do something else uh, with the, you know, with the dedicated because we were losing that one night per week, and the regular freight at, Tra- at Transport America that I could do, you know, it, it, it was a buck, it was like a buck thirty a mile at that time, okay, and so I thought, well, you know, I can do better than this, I'm sure. So what I did was I had four trucks. I stayed at I stayed at Transport America even under the reduced schedule. Um, I sent one truck to Atlas Van Lines, but not doing household stuff. At the time, Atlas was trying to promote a freight, a regular freight division. So I put one truck there. Keep in mind, all my trucks at that time were, I was the newest truck at 07. Most of my truck, I had a 99, an 03, an 07, and what was the other one? Shoot. I one was. Uh, maybe I can't remember what it was. Anyway, they were they were all older trucks, so you you can't just go anywhere because a lot of places had five year, you know, um, maximum age requirements. So um, so we put one of them at, at Atlas. We I sent one of them to a UPS freight, um, and um, and then I sent another one to Landstar. Um, so I just monitored them, yeah. And so uh, the Atlas one, eh, it had, it was chicken and feathers, you know. Uh, there were times when we did really well. There were times when it just was horrible. Uh, UPS freight was pretty good. It was very consistent, but it really, really, really um, took required a really dedicated driver. Uh, you almost had to commit to three weeks out, you know. Um, it was really hard not to do that. Well, that's hard for a lot of guys, you know, to do that. So, uh, the truck did okay. We did, we made good money there, but I don't know. I didn't know if I was, was going to be able to keep a driver that would that be willing to do that. Um, and we had a lot of problems with trailers at UPS. Uh, their trailers were just horrible, you know, um, the Landstar guy, he was just kicking ass, you know. Of course, I'm dispatching him. I went to I went to orientation with him. He went as the driver. I went as the owner, and because I needed to learn the system, because I definitely was going to have to dispatch this guy. And so, uh, but I was looking at what I was doing, dispatching him, and we're killing it. And I thought, well, man, it's no harder to dispatch two trucks than it is to dispatch one. So about three months later, I took my truck to Landstar, and I'm dispatching for both of us. And we were just doing, you know, uh, this was um, 13, 2013. Um, we were just doing, you know, so well um, from a, from a uh, you know, from just financial standpoint. And I liked the system. I mean, I really, really liked, you know, again, remember, I hated having a dispatcher at Transport America. Even when I was at FedEx, I had one, but it didn't matter because I did the same thing every day. Well, here I'm looking at the load board. You know, I'm like, man, I get to choose. All, I'm, I'm total control here, you know. So uh, I really like that idea. And I like the idea of being able to build relationships with agents because that's all I've done all my life is build relationships, you know. So it was that was easy for me to do. Um, and I could see, again, 
Uh, I mean, I've always been attracted to the possibility of just give me the opportunity, get out of my way, and let me just go to work. And that's what I did at Landstar. So I, I, then eventually I moved all the, all the trucks there, you know, uh, as, we, as we completed our obligations, you know, with, with the other places. So, um, so um, uh, you know, I didn't really choose Landstar up front. It, what, I, I chose Landstar after I had a truck there, and I convinced myself that this is the opportunity that I'm looking for, you know. Um, so I found it <clears throat> pretty easy to, uh, to attract drivers then because we were, could pay them so well. Uh, I mean, I wasn't paying my drivers at Transport America anything like I'm paying drivers at, at, at Landstar. I mean, nothing like that, you know. So um, I thought, man, this is going to be a huge win-win because I can really come in here and make a difference in a driver's life, and I can do okay as well, you know. And, of course, uh, that's where I kind of came up with the idea of basically taking everything that I learned at the CMC and turning it into a mentoring program and then, you know, bringing drivers on in my trucks at Landstar where I had full control, you know, and then be able to, uh, you know, to do for them uh, basically what I did for you, you know, and what we're doing today together. So that's how that's that's how that was born. Um, I've got this kind of picture in my mind of, of 2013 um where you're still running fedex so you're running nights and then you're also dispatching a truck at landstar what what kind of freight did you have him running we just ran at that time all i knew to do, do was run the load board you know we we hadn't found any you know we didn't we didn't have any relationships at that time so we're just running load board. Now, I did run into uh, an agent where we ran propane grill tanks, grill gas, out of the Chicago area eventually. And so I did put him on that agent, and so it kind of took the dispatching off of me for at least during the summer. And because uh, we ran that from uh, we ran that from basically Memorial Day to Labor Day in 2013. So, and see, he had been there since like January. So the first four or five months, you know, I dispatched him. And then once we found, we got on that, I really didn't have to dispatch him. And then when I came over, when I brought my truck over from, uh, from Transport to Landstar, she had enough uh, business for us to both do. So I actually did that my first summer. So I really didn't have to dispatch either one of us, you know, um, from until, until Labor Day of 2013. So then, by then, though, I mean, I'd started, you know, developing relationships because I, I brought, I'm bringing the other trucks over at the same time. So we're starting to run freight. We're starting to find, you know, um, you know, freight that we like running. You know, we're starting to figure out the system. We're starting to meet some agents, you know, and um, and so we just just started figuring it out. You know, it took me probably the rest of 2013 to really get it figured out. And of course, with my attraction or my reputation or my experience with FedEx, one of the first relationships I developed was with CGI um, because that's, they, don't, they run FedEx at, uh, at Land Transport, I mean, at Landstar. And so that was probably one of my first agents that, uh, that I, I developed a relationship with. And we started running FedEx at, um, at Landstar as well. And, uh, and of course, I was very familiar, you know, with, with the system. Although at, at, at Landstar, we were running FedEx Freight primarily. And then at Transport America, I was running FedEx Express, airport hub to hub. So it was a different division of FedEx. But still, we knew how to work inside their, their system, you know. What was, what was the conversation like 
with Transport America when when you realized it was time to go and move on? They understood. They tried to talk me out of it, obviously. At this time, my, my asshole fleet manager that, that was going to bust me, he had, they, I had, FedEx had, was so big there that we had three different fleet managers. So I, I eventually got moved off to a different person. I actually had a female that was really, really, really good. And she just begged me to, she's like, man, you, you know, please don't leave. Please, you know, I understand why, why you're doing this. I understand what the, you know, what the monetary ramifications are. But man, we, you know, we really, really want you to stay. And I'm like, you know, I, I understand that. I really like this place. I've, I've, I've referred drivers there still, you know. But I said, look, it's, you know, I've got drivers here whose livelihood depends on me. And not only do I have to make money, they've got to make money. And I said, you know, I've just got to do what's best for them. And this is just the opportunity I think is, is the best for us. And, of course, that, this is not the first time they've lost owner-operators to Landstar, you know. And, right. And she said, well, you know, we have a lot of guys who go there and come back. She says, I don't think that's going to be the case with you. I think you're probably going to do okay there because of, you know, of, of, of who you are and, and what you're, you know, what you're capable of doing. But uh, she just said, look, it, obviously, if you ever want to come back, we're more than glad to have you. And I said, well, I appreciate that, you know. And they did call me, you know, two or three times the first couple of months I was gone to see how I was doing and see if I wanted to come back. And uh, pretty recently, they've come up with a Landstar-type program where you choose your own load off the freight off a low board. And they actually call me. And said, "Hey, you want to come back? We've got we're like Landstar now." <laughs> and I said, yeah, "Well, tell me, tell are. me how like tell me how much you like them. You are okay." And once they told me, I'm like, "Well, no, I don't think so." And, well, what is it? And I go, "Well, let me just explain something to you." I said, "I've got a guy doing ten thousand dollars a week in in revenue." Okay, tell me that I can do that there. And he thought for a few minutes, and he goes, "Nah." He said, "You can't." I said, "I know I can't." That's why I can't come there, you know. So, um, so and I was that guy doing that ten thousand, so you, I knew what it was like. You were the guy. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Tell this guy he's going to get a pay cut because I want to go back to Transport America? Come on, you know. So they understood. They, uh, I, I still to this day though, I think if you're if you want to get with a good company, you know, a very very good company, you know, that treats the drivers very well. They're a good company to go to. If I was going to be a company driver, I guess that's what I would do. You know, uh, owner operator program there. I, you know, it's okay. It's so so. It's not. It's not great. You know, uh, yeah. but I learned a lot there. They treated me well. You know, I got. I found out when they called me about that uh, about their quote Landstar program. I was asking about the FedEx stuff, and they no longer let owner operators do the FedEx stuff. They only really? let come, yes because they can't get owner operators to comply with the demands. You know they're they're uh, independent type, and so imagine they have, that <laughs> they have to have company drivers so they can tell them what to do. You know, um, yeah. And I also found out that they bust that my route no longer. So they they busted my route up into two. They could never find anybody that could do it again after I left. They could never get anybody that could do it and do it on an ELD and do it legally. And so they busted it up into two different routes. It doesn't even exist anymore. So, but uh, anyway, that's that's uh, you know we still have a good real now. A lot of the people that I knew are obviously that's been now you know, five, six years, 
they've they've gone. They're not there anymore. But a few are. I still have a couple of other owner operators who I met there who call me once in a while to check and see how I'm doing. And uh, but I've got it. I still have. I still think a lot of them. You know. Now they've been bought. They were bought by some Canadian company a couple of years ago. So I mean, I, I don't have any idea what the corporate culture is there now. Um, but well, maybe I, if they're Canadians, they're all just really really nice. <laughs> you know. Maybe. Could be. So I, my my favorite part of your story, really, is is from the probably early '80s. Um, we've established, you know, how you kind of stumbled into this this industry, like somewhat by accident. But you started out in the car business, right? I did. My dad my dad was in the car business, so I grew up in the car business. You know, when I, my, all my jobs I had when I was in school was working summers and, and stuff, you know, with, you know, for my dad, you know, in the car business. So, and in the car business specifically, my dad was a parts manager. So when I say car business, I was at a, at a General Motors dealership in the parts department. That's where I got my start. And so set the timeline. This is what, 70 what? Well, I got married in 76. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I got married and, and, and I was working, I was working in a, in a parts department, at, you know, at, at a General Motors dealer, Pontiac dealership. I got married and um, I was, um, actually, I had already, I was a parts manager. I, I'd already, I'd already, you know, in uh, and, and the car business, there's really not a lot of incentive for you to stay at the same place for a long time. The way you make money in the car business is, you know, you have to change jobs so, because somebody hires you away and they have to give you a, a raise to hire you, you know. And so changing jobs is not unusual in the in that in that industry. And so and then on top of that, you've got new management that comes in. And they come in and clean house because they want to bring their own people in. So that happens a lot too. So um, I was uh, working at, as a counter person at the at the at the Cadillac dealership, and I was getting ready to get married. And so the parts manager's job opened up at the Pontiac dealership, and I applied for it and I got it. Well, that was where my dad was parts manager when I was growing up. So they knew me as you know little Larry, you know. So, um, so they, they, I kind of got the job really because of my dad's reputation, you know? And so, um, and so I go to work there and, um, um, I kind of forget your question now, but, but that would have been 77, 76, 77 is when I was, became a manager in the, in the, in the parts business. And then I, um, uh, long about, uh, let's see here, Chris, it was probably about 1980. I had a guy, another, uh, from another town, um, uh, call me and they, they were desperately needing somebody to come in and straighten out their dealership. And so my first real opportunity to go in and, and, and rehabilitate, you know, uh, a business. And so I go over there and of course it was a mess. And so I go through and I straighten out the parts department. And so then the, the, the dealer said, well, you know, what about the service department? And I said, okay, no problem. So I went and straightened out the service department. <laughs> then he said, well, what about the body shop? And I said, okay. So I, I end up doing all three jobs and, and, you know, basically taking them from 
just a disaster, you know, to pretty well run uh, outfit. Matter of fact, it was so well run, I, I won my first General Motors reward um, uh, trip to Hawaii uh, from that from the work at that particular dealership. So they sent me to Hawaii. This is 1980 now, 81. Uh, sent me to Hawaii uh, seven nights. Uh, the hotel room I remember was about 350 bucks at the time, and I thought, man. And so and this is all sweet until I got the 1099. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, but that's that's the you know that, that's how much difference I made. Well, I didn't realize that you know I really like this. I, I enjoy. Uh, this uh, coming in and troubleshooting and figuring out what the problem is. And in most cases, the problem was personnel, you know. So uh, I kind of developed a reputation for that. So then I had the Mercedes dealer call me and go, I did the same thing. You know, they had a parts manager that was really, really old and really hadn't kept up with things. And so had to go in and basically rehabilitate that and you know, and then you try to you do it without trying to let the the human resources be the casualty. You know, so you try to go and you do you try to do it by retraining the people that are already there, and that works sometimes. Sometimes though, you just have to car, you know you just have to start over. You know, unfortunately, but now there was know, there was some some context to this with the general condition of the economy and the and the and the car dealers in the late seventies and early eighties, right? Where where they needed. They needed this profitability from these departments, right? Well, yeah. During Jimmy Carter's administration, um, inflation rose to eight, almost 18%. I mean, inflation, but interest rates rose to 18%. And that destroyed a lot of car business uh, because prior to that, most car dealers, grew. Uh, they, they got their... Uh, most people who are dealership owners are previously good car salesmen. Um, and hardly any time do they have any experience on what we call the back end, which is a service parts and body shop. And so it's, it's a necessary thing to, to have the franchise. You must have one, or at least the service and parts. You don't have to have a body shop, but you got to have service and parts. And so they had to have one, but they had no idea what it did. They had no idea what it's supposed to look like. They had no idea that it could make money, and it was just you know it was back there, and and you know it it you know it, we you, you just tolerated it because you had to have one. But you know you, you your best people were your salesmen. You know, you took your salesmen out to dinner all the time. You you had all these rewards for them. You know the guys in the back they just were they were just a subclass of humans. You know. Well, come 18% interest rate, all of a sudden people couldn't afford to buy cars anymore. You know, so they were keeping their old ones and they were having to fix them up. Well, now all of a sudden dealers had to rely on their service and parts department to make a profit for the, and, and most of them had never made a profit ever, you know. And so that's when GM Goodwrench Marketing came out. If you remember the Dale Earnhardt car, uh, Goodwrench Marketing was a, was a, was a, you know, a, a byproduct of this uh, time where we're, we're now all of a sudden we are actually advertising and marketing our service department, you know, 
uh, because most people, once they bought a car, they never took it back to a dealership. They would take it to Napa and, you know, all this sort of, you know, they would. So now all of a sudden General Motors is trying to market their parts department as an alternative to Napa. Well, you know, that was just a strange thing back then. And then bring your GM, keep your GM car all GM. I remember that, that motto. And uh, nobody knows your GM car like we do, you know. And so bring it in. So all, now all the big promotion to, 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 to get people to use the service and parts department. So that was also going on during that time, which, again, played into my thing because now I became very, very, very uh, marketable because I had a record of doing it in an area where no one around here ever, you know, ever did. So it, I was kind of in demand, and, and it was easy for me to uh, – to make a pretty good living and, and also to learn a lot, because uh, doing this, you, I mean, especially the human resource people, you know, the side of this thing, you know, learning how to go in and, and tell people that they're basically screwing up without pissing them off, you know, and, 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 and so, so that's a whole different skill set, you know, um, and, you know, we're kind of, I mean, we're not doing that really today. We're not going in and telling, you know, and telling people that. But, but we do get guys that have no idea what they're doing. They're failing in, 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 as an owner-operator. And to be able to go in and, and, and tell them what they're doing wrong and show them how to do it right, you know, uh, without, uh, you know, without uh, criticizing them or, or humiliating them, you know, I, I think that skill set is a result of, of what I learned back then, you know, so. So you, you've made it to management. You've made a name for yourself as a uh, as a fixer, as somebody that can come in and 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 take a failing um, body shop, service department, parts department, and turn it around. Now, at this time, you're also a photographer. Like, is that concurrent with with what's going on here in the eighties? Yeah, let me explain that. Uh, photography was always sort of a a hobby of mine. Um, when I was in high school, I was in an organization called Junior Achievement, and it's like a little leadership program for it teaches teaches high school students ca- the capitalism and and how to run a company. And so I, I got a lot of my business, I guess, foundation in that organization. And so I was the I, because photography was like a hobby of mine. I, I was the photographer for the Junior Achievement local newspaper. And that was my first start, actually, as uh, as a photographer. So it, it, it was just something I enjoyed doing. Well, after we got married, and I got married in August of 76. Um, and when you get married and you don't have a lot of money, you know how it is. You, you're always trying to find a way, or at least I was, I tried to find a way of making extra money, you know. And so I was just really taken with our wedding photographer that Mary Lou and her mom had chosen. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I had no experience whatsoever with, I'd never even been to a wedding before I went to mine, you know? <laughs> and so, um, um, I was just really, I thought, man, this is something I can do, you know? So after everything was said and done and, you know, they, we got our pictures and everything, I called his name, his name was, name was Ray Rose. I called Ray Rose up and I introduced myself and I said, listen, I'd like to, can I just hang out? I mean, uh, would you be willing to let me just, just, you know, just hang out with you and, and help or whatever? And because Ray was very, um, well, he's very matter of fact, you know, um, Ray said, he said, I'm, he said, first of all, 
Yeah, you can come hang out, but I'm not paying anything. He said, and second of all, you're not going to make it because I've had about 70 of you guys do this, and no one's made it yet. And I'm like, well, okay. Well, Challenge I really, accepted. I don't really care about making it. <laughs> this let me, yeah, let me come hang out. So Ray was a retired uh, post office letterman. Uh, walked around and handed out mail, you know. And, and so he retired on disability, though, I found out later. And so, again, photography was sort of a sideline for him, you know. And uh, but he had he had a pretty good name in the community as a wedding photographer. Not really so much anything else. Like he didn't have a studio. He didn't do. You know, he just did weddings. That's all he did. You know, which worked out in his. I'm sure because he had a job and weddings are all on the weekend, and that worked out good for me because I had a job, obviously, but I had the weekends free, and so I started going with him, and he did a ton of weddings. We would do, uh, I mean, every Saturday I was going to a wedding, you know. And so I was starting to get better. I mean, I, as, as far as being helpful to him, I was, I was being, he, he started depending on me more. I could tell that, you know. Um, and then uh, I guess about three-fourths of the way through the first year I was with him, he, whatever his disability was flared up, his back or whatever it was, <laughs> And so his wife called me and she goes, Larry, he is, he can't get out of bed. Um, we don't really know what to do. Do you think you can handle the wedding this weekend? And I'm like, yeah, I think I can, you know. So I don't really have the equipment. She goes, that's no problem. Come get the equipment. So I went over and got the equipment and I went and did the wedding. Well, it ended up finishing out the year for him, okay? Mm. And so I thought, well... They'll, this will probably work out. They'll probably let me just sort of take over there, you know. And, and so I, when, when the season was over and uh, we had a couple months off, I approached them. I said, well, how's, how's Ray? And, you know, do you guys, what would you guys think about me just stepping in and, and just taking over for you guys and, and just doing this on my own? Well, they, they were so offended Absolutely not. Absolutely. After I'd done all this work to finish them, I said, well, no problem. Hey, no problem. So that was the end of it. They never gave me a referral, not one time. Um, So I went ahead and started buying the equipment. And in July of 1977, which was almost a full year after we got married, I did my first wedding on my own without Ray Rose. And uh, I charged $165, <laughs> which I thought was a fortune, you know. And um, so uh, I think the first year I did maybe six or eight weddings, something like that. And But it just continued to grow, and I grew as a professional. I joined some organizations and, you know, sort of uh, got the education I needed to, to become, you know, a, uh, uh, a good photographer. And so it just was always, I, 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 there was one period of time there where I did it full time, kind of between businesses that I was owning and, and fixing and so forth. But most of the time, it was just something that I did on the weekends. You know, uh, it was just a good sideline. It was always there. I didn't really have to spend a lot of money on promotion. Um, I could get about 20, 25 weddings a year and not make a phone call. You know, and so, um, and that was always just a good second income. 
and I enjoyed doing them. It was really neat to be able to get into a family and, uh, and do something that you know that they really appreciated and valued. And then, you know, um, and, 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 and just the, the gratification that came from, you know, not only the product, but just knowing that you helped them, you know, on a day that's very important to them. It just was a lot of fun in a lot of ways. I think it really helped me to, again, develop further my people skills, you know, being able to go into a situation where you don't know anybody and have that room warm up to you in just a matter of a few minutes and then just own the room and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, and then, you know, uh, do a good job. And, and, and when, when, when you left, you know, they cried and hugged you and told you, you know, like how it wouldn't have happened without you kind of thing. And just some sort of feel good kind of thing. But yes, it was kind of a sideline all, all, all the way, you know, now, uh, we pretty much kept it away. I mean, we started doing a few other things. We would do some, I mean, just naturally other things, babies and, and families and eventually high school seniors kind of became part of, of, of that. But we really didn't start out doing that. It did, that just sort of organically, you know, happened as a result of doing it. But, um, so yeah, that, that was just something that we just sort of maintained all along, uh, and it just supplemented what what I was doing during the week, really. So, so how long did you you eventually got out of the car business? I got out of the car business. Um, well, there was an overlap. My um, mom worked for a dry cleaners all of her life. Now, my mom, you have to understand, I had an eighth grade education. Um, hardest worker I ever knew. Probably my work ethic definitely came from her. And so I'm sitting here, you know, getting fairly successful at business. I'm looking at my mom. She's worked for a dry cleaner all of her life, making, you know, not very good money. My dad was seven years older than my mom, so he was getting ready to retire. Um, And I'm like, you know, you guys deserve to, to, you know, to, to benefit from, you know, my expertise as well. And so I helped my mom and dad get into, to open their own dry cleaning business. And it was just a little store. We found a great neighborhood and we opened up this little store. We called it, my mom's name was Frances. We called it Frances Quality Dry Cleaning. Had her picture on the, the logo was her picture. And it was the, it was the best little thing because people would come in and basically they had, what was what was there it was it was like bringing your laundry home to your mother you know and having her do it you know that was kind of the way it looked you know with my mom and dad there they were the face of the business and it took off you know we end up actually end up by opening up a, another couple of locations and we end up buying out a, an existing chain uh called four seasons and so we eventually grew the thing into a fairly big business you know so I quit the car business in order to go work in that business full time. So um, I, I did, uh, and 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 so I, um, um, I, I I quit the car business full time, but my reputation still was out there. And I had as as people opened up new dealerships, they would call me to come in and help set up their parts, service, and body shop. 
So I did a little bit of what I would call consulting work. You know, I really wasn't an employee of that company. I just came in and helped them get started and helped them troubleshoot and helped them. So I did that a couple of years at the same time I was working in the dry cleaning business with my mom and dad full time. And so um, I was the I was the person who expanded. Mom and dad would have kept the same location forever. They would never. But I'm the one that saw the growth. I'm the one that took the risk. I'm the one that bought the chain. And you know, we're, I'm the one that turned it into the 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 big business that it can end up being. Well, big relatively. And um, but we pretty much uh, we were one of the one of the two big players in in Central Kentucky at at the time when we when we, we reached our peak. And so that was a result of me coming over from the car business and working in that full, in that business full time. So this is still in the eighties. Uh, let me think about that. We opened the first dry cleaner in eighty seven. Yes. So yeah, it was late eighties and then into the nineties. Um, I remember that um, one of my biggest um, one of my biggest. Um, uh, expansions we bought we bought the chain we bought the four seasons chain um well no that's not true we 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 bought all this okay we built it all up my mom died in 97 unexpectedly um she woke up and had a brain aneurysm and and never regained consciousness and so that sort of pulled the plug out of me as far as uh, that business you know I, i really had trouble you know maintaining that business without her and so we sold it uh, and sold it to a uh, a competitor and um, I made the mistake of holding the paper on it because they didn't really have the money and I really wanted to sell it because I really had a hard time dealing with you know with with mom's death and, and that sort of thing I needed to get out of there so I agreed to, t- to hold the paper on it well about it a year or two later, they, they, they struggled. They finally defaulted. And so the bank calls me in and they said, look, you know, um, it, part of the, part of the, the resolution of the solvent insolvency was that I got it back basically at a, at a steal, at a, basically for what they owed me, I got the, I got it all back, you know? Um, so, um, I owned it again. And, um, so I had to sell it again. <laughs> so we, uh, I, this was during, um, 9-11, uh, 2001, 9-11. Uh, and I remember that I had agreed uh, to take this thing back. And then 9-11 happened. And I, and I thought, man, I, you know, this is, uh, I hope I made the right decision here, you know. So we end up getting back. Um, uh, I, I, I took it back and we, we had to build it back up again. And I sold it to the other competitor that was in town at that time. So now they had it all. So I was able to get it uh, get it sold, and and uh, and then you know I was, I was pretty much done with it at that point in time. So then, from so that last say seven or eight years until you started trucking, you were just solely doing photography. Yeah, I was doing photography full time at a studio in a mall. And uh, that's when we expanded the photography to doing families and seniors and stuff like that. So that is true. And then I, uh, this little invention called the iPhone came out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was already bad enough to go to a wedding. And, you know, everybody wants to bring their camera and be the photographer. 
well. You know, you might have 10, 15 cameras there at a wedding that you're having to walk around and deal with. Well, then all of a sudden, everybody in the church had a camera in their pocket. And I just saw the handwriting on the wall. I said, well, this is just not going to, this this is not going to be a product that I'm going to be able to continue to sell and make money on because, uh, and not only that, then the, the customers at that time end up being, you know, millennials and, you know, what, and the photography business is a little bit unusual in that you don't really get paid up front. You really don't get paid for your labor. You get paid for the product that you sell. So to give you an idea, if you're do, if you're having your family portrait made, now again, go back to the late 90s, early 2000s. And, uh, I mean, digital was, it was I mean, barely around. Um but you would hire a photographer for, you know, a couple of hundred bucks to, to go take your family out to the park or wherever and do a series of photographs. And then you would come in and you'd look at what we would call proofs. Um, and you would uh, pick out what you like. And then you would place the order. Well, that order is where you made your money. The 200 bucks basically just covered your costs for the materials and your time to go do it. So, the, the of course, the... the um, the grand prize was a wall portrait, you know, a big picture that you hang on a wall in a frame, you know, preferably 16 by 20 or larger, you know. Uh, those great big 8 by 10s didn't make you a lot of money, you know. But that 20 by 24 wall portrait did make you a few hundred bucks, you know. So that's the that's how that model worked. Um, and, of course, with a wedding, it was the album, you know, that was the, uh, the, the, the big fish. So... Uh, when digital came out, and, and again, with, when, uh, w- with the age of the digital consumer, no longer was that product desirable because they just wanted the images on their phone or they just wanted them, they wanted the file on their computer. So it just really changed the business to where now, you know, you had to charge up front or you weren't going to get paid. And no one was used to doing that. No, no, the consumers weren't used to paying, you know, like that. They weren't hiring a photographer like they hired a plumber, you know. Um, so um, it, I, I just saw the handwriting on the wall and I said, this is not, this is not sustainable. Um, I sold my, I sold my business and sold all my equipment and everything probably a year later than I should have. It, it, it would have been it would have been worth more, a lot more, a year earlier, but I, I held on probably a year too long. Uh, and, Chris, that would probably have been, I think my last wedding uh, was probably in about 07, you know. 06, we were winding down. Should have sold in 06, did sell in 07. You know, I think there's some similarities, not really to the, there's really in truck and note, not really any technology that has come in, but we we ride the waves. You know, you talked about the instant gratification. That is relatively new. When I started in 97, you know, we had to take paper when we finished a load and fuel receipts and scale receipts and all the other stuff that we did and put it in an envelope and stick it in the mail and if your mail didn't make it back in time, you didn't get paid. Um, you know, the, I think there's still some, I think they're called trip pack, yellow mm-hmm. sure. boxes, you know. Sure. Uh, and that's how everybody got paid. There's no digital imaging the way there is now. They, 
you know, no deliver it today, get paid tomorrow. And um, so drivers get kind of spoiled by that. And as you were telling that story about how the model changed about how you got paid, you know, I think you think that helped prepare you for some of the the waves that came in this business of, of how freight volume goes down and capacities up and rates fall. Um, and you, you have to be able to handle that without pulling you all your hair out or just stomping off your feet and, and leaving. Ironically, I see a lot of comparisons right now with autonomous and electric and all the things that all the technology that we're fearing right now as drivers the same thing happened in photography with digital you know it, we went through the same thing and, and and here's the thing that that i think is a little bit alarming when digital first came out in photography everybody thought it was a 15 year at at at, at the minimum 15 years before it would be um totally accepted and would be the way that things are done. And, of course, this was in early 2000s, okay, let's say, maybe 01, something like that. And I thought, well, if that's the case, I probably can just hang on and not have to learn this new technology. I can just ride it out with what I've got because I don't need 15 years, you know, to, 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 to I don't need to last that long. Well, I'm telling you what, by 05, it was 100%, you know, um, and, and, and you, you, you couldn't find anybody that, uh, and, and, and on top of that, the product um, uh, offering was severely uh, changed with digital because now there's such a thing as Photoshop, and now there's such a thing as all these digital products, you know, that we could not do as a film-based uh, photographers. So now to stay marketable and to stay in business and to stay attractive to our customers, I had to go back and immediately, you know, uh, convert over to digital. I mean, in a huge way, you know, um, where had I embraced it and grown with it gradually, I wouldn't have had to go back and do that. I see the same thing right now in trucking, you know, we're talking about autonomous. We're talking about all these other things. We're saying, oh, it's not going to happen for, you know, 25. You, know, you could not have convinced photographers that it, that would have happened in five years. And I'm a little bit concerned that this technology will take on, you know, uh, blockchain, all these things we're talking about. I don't think it's going to be as long as a lot of people think it's going to be because I think that this thing grows legs and, uh, yeah. and, and there's all kinds of the money is being invested. And so, I mean, I just, I just see so many comparisons today in trucking is what I went through in photography. Yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, I see it as exciting because I, I see all of the good um, for consumers because uh, I'm one of those two. I'm not only a driver, I'm also a consumer. You know, I, I use these products that are being hauled in these trucks. And so... Um, I, I think there's a lot of people in for a rude awakening in this, in this business. Um, and some of them are, you know, a bunch of them are going to go kicking and screaming and there'll be a bunch of people that leave. Uh, but I'm overall optimistic about the future of the industry and the changes that we can make. And I think we can be more efficient. 
Uh, but there's going to be a lot of people that are just clueless. They have no idea what's fixing to happen to them. And, um, you know, I don't know. That's unfortunate for them, fortunate for us. I don't know what, you know, but I'm, I'm really okay with it. But it's going to be interesting to watch, and I think you're right. You know, 36 to 60 months may be long. You know, it, it may be 18 to 24. It, it's hard to tell, you know, of how of how quickly the infrastructure comes in and, and the changes start taking place. The people, though, that will accept the change, embrace the technology, and 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 continue, you know, to um, to make themselves marketable, have nothing to worry about here. You know, there, there's going to be money made in this industry. We may have to change the way that we do it. But that's always an opportunity. It's not something that you should fear. It's something you should, um, you know, you should run towards it, not run away from it, in my opinion. Yeah. So uh, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering your history. So I guess let's talk about the current state of Blue Ribbon. Uh, maybe, maybe hit on what it almost was, which was ended. And then uh, I think we both saw a new opportunity last year when I came along. Um, and, and where, where we would like to head, uh, with it going forward. Okay, sure. Well, when you say almost ended, you know, I'm 65 years old now and, uh, you know, I, uh, um, thought that by 67, I would probably not want to be doing active, uh, you know, I, I would I would like to have passive income, but not have to be worried about active income. And so I kind of had Blue Ribbon set up to where I had some of the trucks sold to drivers, and I was so, basically letting it basically a trit to where it would kind of put itself to bed by the end of um, by 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 the end of 2020. Um, I kind of had every I had everything basically figured out except my that, that original Mercedes-Benz truck. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I figured well I'd have to just drag it to the to the all which, auction. Which <laughs> you you offered me at my first interview and I politely declined. <laughs> <laughs> yes you did. <laughs> so ex- with the exception of that truck I had everything else pretty much you know there was I, I knew what I was going to do with it and, ha- and had plans for it to, to go away. And so um, I end up with a uh, um, uh, I end up with an opening, a driver opening, you know, and so um, uh, this guy named Chris Polk uh, comes into my life, <clears throat> and uh, that's a story of its own because uh, um, he had a Facebook, you had a Facebook post, and you were basically telling the world how big a screw-up you were, and how you failed, and it was nobody's fault but yours. And it was yep. very, very eloquently stated, very elaborately expanded on. And I thought it was the most honest thing I ever read. And I contacted you immediately and said, hey, uh, you know, because, I mean, that's what we that's exactly what I've tried to do at Landstar is, is try to, you know, give people a chance who who failed for you know, not necessarily reasons of their own, but for, for just for a, from a lack of business. You know, I never held myself out to be a truck driver, truck trainer, 
you know, I would never, ever do that. I don't even think I'm that great of a driver, honestly. But I do think I'm a damn good businessman. And so I do also realize that most people who fail as an owner-operator don't fail because they don't know how to drive a truck. They fail because they don't know anything about business. And they don't understand, you know, how to make, how to treat business. And I recognize that that was your situation right off the bat. And so I thought, man, this is this is what I need to do. So I responded to the Facebook thing. And, you know, we end up talking on the phone. And, and it just was one of those things that was meant to be. I mean, everything that Chris needed, you know, I could fix. Everything that I needed, Chris was. And, uh, of little did I know that he would give me the impetus to not only not let Blue Ribbon basically die uh, a slow natural death, um, he gave me the encouragement and the excitement to actually turn around. And now we're growing it the opposite direction. And uh, and Chris is actually going to take over the reins of this thing in a couple of years, and it will be, it will become his, and I'll be his consultant, you know. Um, but, uh, but that's really where we are. And Landstar has been a perfect, um, uh, environment for that to work because, uh, Landstar is a perfect example of, of the free market. Um, everybody comes to Landstar is born upside down and naked, you know, and they just yeah. go from there. And, you know, we all have the same opportunities, the same tools, the same freight, the same agents, everything's the same. The only difference between somebody who's succeeding at Landstar and failing is what they have between their ears, you know, and how hard they're willing to work. And so, um, but everybody doesn't come to Landstar with the same, you know, level of expertise. And it's when it comes to business. Because the thing that most people don't realize is when you come to Landstar, you're going in business for yourself. And for most people that come here, it's their first time. And they don't understand that business is a whole different thing. You know, when you save the boss every morning, it's a whole lot different than you get up and you're working for Transport America, you know. Yeah. And so um, I've just found this to be a fertile ground uh, to, 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 you know, apply this knowledge and let other people benefit from it. And no better example than Chris. And, um, you know, just what he did in, in the last year, it blew me away. And, and, and then not only that, and of course, last year was not a difficult year. But he's doing the same thing, if not better, this year than last year. And, of course, the market this year is much different. But um, he's embraced everything that, you know, that I have uh, have offered him. Uh, and conversely, he has uh, taken me to a whole different level. Uh, what we're doing here right now, I totally don't understand it. I can't believe that anybody would listen to this. And it looks like we're going, we're getting ready to touch two hours right now. And if you're still listening to this at the, at the two hour mark, you have got, you're sick. You need help. Um, but, uh, I just, you know, this, this blows me away. Uh, but, uh, he has convinced me that this is the thing. And of course, what we really want to do is help people. That's really what it comes down to. You know, we want to give people the opportunity to come work with us, gain the knowledge, let us help you. Uh, not make the mistakes that most people in this industry make and uh, let you be uh, let you enjoy the success that we are enjoying and just let us pay it forward and pass it on to you. And that's really where we are. And that's uh, our, our plan right now is to uh, is to grow our company over the next year or two. And, and, and as far as the number of trucks that we offer, 
but in in many many other different products in in terms of educational and helping and things like that too so um hope that answered your question chris yeah yeah well it's you know the trucking industry is a fertile ground for for training and, and teaching and and i think the trucking industry is going to be the proving ground for blockchain and new technologies that will that will transcend trucking and and start to transform other other industries and other markets and so we have a golden opportunity but i think the the kinship that we that we have found is that we both enjoy um sharing the knowledge that we receive through experience because uh, you, you can't teach this stuff you you i mean well it's not true you can you can teach the principles but the what what is learned through experience is um is in is invaluable and so i um i'm looking forward to using some of my technical expertise to to be able to to capture larry's experience with video and audio and um, and do these podcasts and, and comment on um, the issues of the day um, we as we converse on daily about the issues that pop up we probably have a little different perspective than what you're used to hearing and so I think it's going to be you know it, it's going to be enlightening and it's also going to be entertaining um, because I've, I've been entertained uh, I've been sitting here two hours now almost and and I'm not bored um, I, I love hearing this story and I've gotten a few pieces of information that I didn't have before. So if you're enjoying this, you can look forward to more of it. We're going to uh, begin recording on a regular basis. And and, and we, want to, we want to begin sharing you some of these nuggets that I've gotten over the last year that has given me clarity to uh, explain for me the, the good things that I did when I was an owner-operator and gave me context for the bad things that I did and, and, and how that led to my ultimate failure so i've had fun here larry i appreciate you being with me it's uh it's been a pleasure to to meet you get to know you to work for you and uh, i'm looking forward to many great things in the future well chris i couldn't agree more it's been been a pleasure working with you this year it's so impressive what you've done um, I'm, I'm very proud of you and uh i am um looking forward to this as well like i say this is all new territory for me and chris has had to has to drag me screaming and kicking you know, to do this but uh, i'm committed to it i'm committed to helping people and uh, if he thinks that this is the way we should do it i'm all in um, i hope i can keep it entertaining enough for for, for everybody so that they want to continue to listen but we've got a lot of information we want to share and uh, we just um, think this is a good way just to sit here and talk and 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 let you guys listen in. So, uh, Chris, glad to be here. Looking forward to it. And um, I don't know. we got to go to work tomorrow, don't we? Yeah, we? Yes, we do. I certainly hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I learned a lot about Larry. I've heard a lot of those stories before. Uh, he gave me a lot of details that I'd never heard before. Um, and uh, I really, really look forward to the time we're going to spend together in the future making podcasts, making training videos, you know, doing seminars. The 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 list is, is pretty much limitless as to what uh, what we can do and what we can achieve with this platform. Be sure to check in with us. Uh, you can check the website here, anamericantruckdriver.com. You can also find us over at blueribbonlogistics.com. I'll have that linked in the show notes. Um, 
You can send us an email through anamericantruckdriver at gmail.com if you have questions for Larry or I. Um, We are going to be hiring some drivers. Uh, The number of trucks we have obviously is limited. Uh, But we want to be able to help the people that we, you know, even if we don't have a truck that we can put you in, we certainly have uh, some knowledge and experience that we can share with you. Remember that we're on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Driver, facebook.com slash Blue Ribbon Logistics. Um, you can find us there. I'm on Twitter at ChrisPolk76. Uh, give us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, that really helps uh, other people find our show when you give us good reviews. So until next time, be safe and we'll see you later.